question. What is your favourite film? What is your favourite film? Go on, shout them out to me. Titanic, Pretty Woman, Footloose. Oh, come on. About time. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Back to the Future. Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't know about you, but actually, I think we quite enjoy stories, don't we? You think, really, you think about a film, you just really enjoy watching a film, reading a book, getting into a story. And uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Ruth. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to it right now. Um, I, I'd just like to tell you that um, I love stories, but I generally like only watching them once. Nikki and I have a date night, it's on a Friday night, and we try and think, oh, how do we do something together? And alternate Fridays, you have to plan it. And last Friday, we watched 127 Hours. Anyone seen that one? Nice romantic film about a guy who chops his arm off. I'd just like to say in my defence, Nikki chose the film. And uh, dare I say this publicly, I know it'll get me in trouble when I get home. I've seen it before. I haven't. <laughs> So I don't know about you, but I sort of thought, oh man, yawn. I know what happens. He falls down a crevice. I don't want to spoil it if you've never seen it before. It's been out a long time. Falls down, gets his arm stuck. After about six days, chops his arm off, walks out. End of story. I'm not a great one for repeats. I was thinking the, the only, only story that I've really enjoyed many times, if I think back over my life, is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I don't know about you, when it starts getting a little bit colder, I'm already getting excited about Christmas. And whenever, I know, when I was a teacher, I wasn't even allowed to say the C word until December. You know, kids got too hyped. But I think, I love reading A Christmas Carol. Every year, I used to read A Christmas Carol before Christmas. And every year, you'd think, I could find something else more exciting about this story. Some of you, if you're really honest would watch the same film 10 times, 20 times. I mean, Batman Returns, I mean, somebody's seen it 50 times, goodness knows. The fact is that if we're really honest, if we do look at a story for a second or third time or fourth time, we often get some more details out of it. You know, and often when you look at it for the next time, you say, oh, I never noticed that before, and I've suddenly discovered something. The story of Ruth was remembered every year by the Jews. So this was something that actually happened. It's not a made-up story. It was an, an event. But what they used to do is at the, the Festival of the Weeks, as it was called, we would call it Pentecost, they used to reread this story. It's almost like, wow, this is one of our classics. This is one of the ones we don't ever want to forget. So we will read it every year. They used to have five festivals and different stories for each festival. We're going to be going through it over the next four weeks and so I'm going to read the whole of chapter 1 to us this morning. It says in my Bible, I'm reading from, it's called the NIV uh, translation. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. 
Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I mean, tragic, isn't it? First five verses, you think, what a story. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them. They wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. As many of you know, I used to be a primary school teacher, and and I feel this morning as, as if I'm back in the classroom. I don't, I don't, teachers get away with this now. I stopped teaching 18 years ago, but you know, it's almost like I used to get all the kids onto the carpet at the end of the day and say, are you sitting comfortably? Once upon a time, you know, and then you'd tell this story, or you'd read a story, and it was great because you could just get lost in the story. 
This story of Ruth has been called by some the most beautiful story ever written. One commentator called it the perfect story. I'm going to look at it very quickly in the three sections that I think we find here in this first chapter. That the fact is that I think initially it starts with a national disaster. What happened? Well, if you don't know your Bible very well, my Bible, you're still on the same page. You can see that it happened in the time of the Judges. It follows straight after the book of Judges. It was during the Judges. Judges tells the story of the people of God in the Old Testament between Joshua that led them out, uh, no, sorry, that led them into the promised land, between Joshua and Saul. Saul was the first king. Joshua was the one who made the walls of Jericho fall down. Well, it was God, wasn't it? But that's the story that started. It was about a 400-year period. It was a terrible time for the nation. They kept going round and round in circles. What would happen as a nation is that they would sin against God. And God would think, I'm just getting fed up with this bunch. So often he would then send another nation in to judge them. They would then think, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. Why is life going so wrong? So they would cry out to God, God, you've got to help us. And God would say, okay, so he would raise up a judge. Judges in those days weren't people that wore wigs. They probably had swords. They were a bit more military than political. They were a bit more local, actually, than national. A judge was one that would come and actually bring about some freedom for God's people and then just go back to their normal life. Some of the judges you might have heard of would be someone like Gideon or Samson or Deborah. This was the period that this was happening. It says in the time of the judges. It also tells us there was a famine. I mean, this is, in some respect, this is tragedy. You think nationally, tragic, famine, tough time. I, I, I don't know about you, I grew up in the countryside. And so when our churches, we used to often have a harvest. And I was thinking the other day, do we do a harvest? But for most of us that live in London, what, what's a harvest? It's Tesco's special offer or something, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? You go along and think, oh, I can have strawberries any time of the year. They're just a bit more expensive. Oh, there's grapes. They probably come from Spain or South Africa or something. In those days, it wasn't like that. You know, if the harvest came in, you ate well. If the harvest didn't come in, you didn't eat well. Bethlehem was a great place to eat. It had wheat and barley and olives and and wine, and grapes. But when there was a famine, they were in trouble. This is really sad because Bethlehem, the town, means house of bread. So it's almost like the house of bread had no food. The house of bread was empty. Now we might think, oh golly, what a tragedy. You know, we thought global warming was a recent thing. They didn't put it down to global warming. They didn't even put it down to invading armies, although we know with Gideonites, that Gideon, that often the Midianites were coming in and taking the food. They knew that if it was a famine, God was judging them. So in this time of national disaster, this story starts with the judgment of God. And what happened is in the midst of this, they suddenly forget everything. You think about it. I mean, here's this guy, Elimelech. We, we, uh, Elimelech, we, he suddenly forgets. Hang on. What's been the whole story of the book? It's that God will bring his people into their land. 
God said, I will bring you into a land. What, well, what do we know about the land? Flowing with milk and honey, a place of possession, a place of provision. So that was the promise of God. They forgot the promises of God and thought, we've got to get out. They forgot that God was going to provide. Even Elimelech, and, and this is where we, we can miss it. This is just by way of once upon a time, setting the sting. Sorry, I should be on to the first picture, Isaac, of the story. You know, you're just going to think, it was, it was a famine, it was tragedy. Elimelech, his name actually means, my God is king. But suddenly he's running away. Suddenly he's forgetting why his parents named him and he's running away. Naomi actually means pleasant, lovely and delightful. Their families had named them like this. And yet suddenly they were just in trouble. I would say that the story is all about he made a bad choice. He left where God wanted him to be. Moab, I don't know how well you know your Bible, but Lot ended up having sex with his daughters. And the children that resulted from that were the Moabites. And so basically to go into the land of Moab, it was a land that had been brought out of promiscuity. It was a land that actually, they used to have shrines on the top of the mountains where basically they went to make love because they believed that the God of fertility would see them having sex and his sex was the harvest. So they worshipped the God who provided harvest by making love. This, this is the land that he's going to. So it's almost like the God who promised you bread, oh, there isn't any, well, we go to this other land where actually there's these bizarre practices that, that God in heaven might provide. They make these tragic choices. And we see terrible circumstances. I don't know why, but the, the, the film, if you remember it, that story of four weddings and a funeral, no one said that was a classic. I mean, this one could be turned into two weddings and three funerals, couldn't it? I mean, it seems unbelievable that they turn up in this place and, and suddenly, you know, the husband dies, the two kids marry, they both die. I mean, you, you sort of think, oh, by verse 5, you're thinking, Help. why on earth would we want to look at this story? Do you know what else would have been tragic for them? It said, there's a little verse in verse 4. They lived there about 10 years. Some commentators have said this again was judgment on the family. because And, and, and there's a slight discussion. Did they live there 10 years or were they married for 10 years? You see, in those days, and this is no judgment, any, anyone here has been married for 10 years. But in the Bible, if you were married for 10 years and had no kids well, then it's almost like you were barren, which was more judgment from God. If you remember, it was Abraham and Sarah that they'd been married for 10 years, and he was getting on a bit, and they said, well, we've got no heir, we've got no kids. And so it was then that Sarah said, look, you can have my maid, Hagar, and let's see if we can get a kid here. Because they were thinking, 10 years, we've tried forever, it's not going to work. The thought of no name being preserved by no next generation was a tragedy for these folk. Yet the father had died, the son had died, but hopefully the name will be continued because actually one day we'd like to be back in the promised land and our inheritance. No, no, actually this whole family was going to get blotted out because there was no future generation. No explanation, no details, five verses. <laughs> Golly, you got, I don't know if you're feeling depressed. I'm feeling depressed and I chose to preach on this. 
<laughs> this is the inspired word of God. I believe it. You know what I'm saying? It is true for us today. It's not this one-off weird story. It's a great story for us. I guess what I do want to be really honest, though, life can be tough. Let's be frank now. Life can be tough. We had a friend phone us this week. Son is 18. And they think, ah, he's got to go to hospital. Got some checks. Actually, they think he's got cancer. Not quite sure what's going to happen. What? Life seems tough, doesn't it? Some of you folk here, you think, oh, golly, my health pit is not good. I'm still waiting on some results. Some of you think, golly, things have gone belly up in my family. Life feels tough. I can't stand my job. I haven't got a job. I've got a job, but I can't live on the money. Maybe if you're really honest, you would look back and say, I made a bad choice a few years ago, and now I feel it's biting me. Maybe if you're really honest, you think, I've forgotten the promises of God, and it just seems dull. And and this is what I find challenging about this. There doesn't seem any answers. There doesn't seem an explanation I mean, why did that guy die? Why did the sons die? It can feel like, God, I'm talking to you. Are you listening? Life can be tough. This picture is actually of statues in Ireland. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of the history of Ireland, but obviously they had this whole famine with the potato famine. So they've got these statues in the middle of Ireland, and it's almost like, let's remember tough days gone by. And then the next part of this uh, book, this story that we're going to look at, is I would say from verse 6 to 18, and this is almost like the journey home. She now makes this decision. Yeah, we suddenly, she decides that actually, rather than struggling in this foreign land, she thinks, I want to go back to the people of God. And, and in some respect, I feel there's so many pictures in here, and, and, and as I'm preparing, I'm thinking, golly, which road do I go down? Some of you, if you're really honest, you think, I've been a long way from the people of God, and life just feels like it's been tough. And for some of you, you think, well, actually, maybe God's saying, come back to the people of God. Get involved in church again. I think that, that you could say that. This wasn't an easy decision for her. They reckon it was 50 miles to go from there back to there. You know, three ladies traveling 50 miles. It was a tough call. I find this, this whole thing is just very real and very emotional. You know, I mean, this, this is a, the part in the story where you get the tissues out, isn't it? You know, we've got a box at the back. I did think maybe I should have handed them all out some kind of prophetic picture this morning. You know what I'm saying? Come on, we've got to make some decisions. It's going to be tough. Let's get the tissues out. Let's get this ready. Tears flow. I mean, you know, I don't know. I read that and it says, oh, they cried. You think, <laughs> and then went on. No, I mean, they would have sobbed. There was an emotion here. Do you know, it was so tough, this part of the story, that the woman acts like a man. Why do I say that? Because Naomi suddenly gets really logical, doesn't she? (laughs) You know, they've had this big heart-to-heart, and she thought, this is not working. My daughters, she's got very emotional there because they're daughters-in-law, and suddenly she changes the name from daughter-in-law to daughters. She's been emotional with them and said, look, come on, realize it's time to go. And then what happens is she then tries, right, I've got to try and change tact. I've got to be logical with you. Think about it. Facts, she's going... I mean, she's I'm an old woman. If I had a baby tonight, and they're going, you can't have a baby tonight, you're not even married. But she said, look, if I had a baby tonight, and, and you know, you've got to wait until at least 16, I'd have thought, you know, are you really going to wait? Would it be interested in you anyway? I mean, come on, you're old. 
I mean, she's gone right down what I would call the man route. This is logic, and the logic is, you're out of there. You know, you can't do it. You're not up for it. There's this journey. We find in the midst of this journey, this faithful friend. Orpah does the, the logical thing, the ordinary thing. Ruth does the extraordinary thing. And you can suddenly think it's a massive change around. And some of you, if you're really honest, you think you've got to make some tough decisions. Some of you think, yeah, life is tough. What do I do? Do I, do I go back and, and this is going to be hard? I think you can see that all in this story. When she gets back, and, and this is really just by details of looking at the story, she's bitter. So they've made the tough decisions. She then gets back, and there's just this sense of bitterness. She went away full. Now, I sometimes think this is the problem with bitterness. You forget the facts. She went away because there was a famine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Why did she leave the place? There was nothing to eat. But actually, suddenly she's bitter, and she says, oh, in the past, it was always much better than this. I don't think it was necessarily better. And, and the difficulty is, in her bitterness, she forgot what God had given her anyway. She had Ruth with her. But she said, I've come back empty. This is the whole thing. She, there's this bitter, it, I mean, I find it amazing how selfish she gets. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. I went away. I was full. I, and I think, hang on, Ruth has given up everything for you. I mean, some people I know have had it read at weddings. Some people say, oh, it's the most sort of sacrificial thing. If you think what Ruth has just done for her, she says, you know, where you go, I'll go. I mean, this was a whole different people. Where you stay, I'll stay. I'm going to work it out. It will be tough. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. I mean, Ruth said, look, I'll abandon everything for you. She even says, look, where you die, I will die. Historically, people would have wanted to be buried with their ancestors. It's almost like you rest in peace with your family. Ruth made such a commitment. She said, I leave it all for you. And yet in her bitterness, Naomi comes back and says, I've got nothing. Self-pity blinds us. We exaggerate our own hopelessness. And in many respects, you could say, Pete, what a depressing chapter. <laughs> I'm glad there aren't 16 chapters of Ruth. I'm glad we've only got four weeks. I've already decided I'm going to visit my family next. Oh, no, no, we've got a dedication. You've got to bring it cheerful next week. I mean, we can be like that with a story, can't we? And it can almost be, if you just look on the one level, you just think, man, what a tragic story. I, I believe prophetically that this is what some of us have got to do. We've got to take out our spiritual 3D glasses. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, they were just cardboard and it was red and green. But now, actually, I think they're quite good looking on me. <laughs> I wonder if it makes me look more intelligent. I'm going to trip over something in a minute, you know. But you sort of feel like, no, actually, I, I think prophetically, we have to look at this story at a totally different level. I think the danger is that if we just look at that, we could try and make some, oh, well, there's some good things there, bad choices, left the people of God, went back to the people of God. Oh, she prayed a blessing on those that she wanted to leave. There's loads of what I could call practical things, but actually, I feel that God would say, we've got to look at this at a third level. What's the third level in this story? Many people have said there's three characters in Ruth. It's Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And we'll be looking at all of those. 
But I would say that when you take the spiritual glasses on, you realize, no, it's not about the three characters that are on earth. It's about the God in heaven. And I think what we've got to do is we've got to look at this and think, okay, so what do we learn about God in a chapter like this? Well, I, I think there's many things I could pick out. One is the fact that although there's this national disaster, God is interested in this individual. And let's be frank, God is interested in you as an individual. God is aware of your personal story. You might just think, oh man, it's just grey out there, it's black. And, and you might think, oh Pete, why am I alive in such a time as this? I mean, the number of kids that are aborted in this country. You might just think the way marriage is going in this country. You might think the debt, my kids are going to be in debt for years. I tell you, whatever's going on there, I want you to know that God is interested in you as a person. I, I find this in this story. I mean, Ruth, she wasn't even part of the people of God, but God knew her story. God knows your story. What do I learn about God in this story? I mean, I find this fascinating even with Naomi. She talks about the God who's almighty. That was the word that they used for God in Genesis, because actually that was the reference to God the creator, God the, the mountain, God the strength, God the unmovable, God the unshakable. That's the kind of picture they were looking at. You see, she understood that when famine came, it was the hand of God. She understood that when food came, in verse 6, she doesn't just suddenly say, when, when she heard in Moab, the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food. She realized that everything came from God. You see, she had spiritual 3D on. I don't know about you, you might think, oh, wow, I've got lucky, I've got a job. Or do you think, no, actually, God has provided? You think, oh, wow, I got, I got a fortunate break there, managed to get a degree, managed to bump into the right kind of person, my CV landed on the right desk. No, no, or do you think, actually, God is in control? Because I think when you look at the story of Ruth, we can look at it on the one level, or we can think, actually, God is doing this. God visited his people. She didn't say, oh, wow, at least Bethlehem, the land of bread, the house of bread is now back in stock. She realized it was God. That's what we find out from this story. Naomi prays for the two daughters that God would bless them. Even when she came back, she said, it's God's hand that's been against me. She said, the Almighty has made her life bitter. The Lord brought her back empty. The Lord afflicted me. The Lord brought misfortune upon me. Naomi understood this about God. She understood that God existed. Do you? Do you recognize that God exists? Or do you think, I'm just living on this one level? Oh, just trying to get through the next month. I'm just trying to get the next career break. Just trying to get the next job. Trying to get the next... Or do you think, actually, I live in awareness of God exists? Number two, Naomi understood that God was sovereign. God is in charge. God has got authority. She understood that God had afflicted her. We can find that really difficult. Well, God would afflict me. Why would he allow that? I guess what I think is, though, she'd forgotten to go 4D. You see, and I was going to do this, and it's a little bit chilly in here, so I'm glad I didn't. I once went to a 4D cinema. Have any of you been to a 4D cinema? Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I've traveled. <laughs> this was in um, Euro Disney Paris. Honey, I shrunk the audience. 
I mean, it's fantastic. Anyone been to that now? You suddenly think, yeah. So what happens, you see, is there's this 4D. So you've got 3D glasses, and the things come out like this, you see. And then suddenly, right at the end of the story, there's this massive great dog on the screen that sneezes, and they spray water on you. You suddenly think, the dog has sneezed on me. And, and there's rats running around, and they flick this air across the back of your legs. And you think, golly, I've just been touched by a rat. It's almost like I've gone up to another level. I, I said to Isaac, who sat at the back, I said, have you got a little water pistol? I'd like you just to shoot the church from the back. <laughs> Fortunately, he said he'd only got sort of, you know, one of these machine guns. I thought it'd make you a bit wet, so we decided not to do it. But you see, I think she had an understanding of God, but I think she probably didn't have a fuller grasp of God, a 4D understanding of God. What do I mean by this? If you think about the Bible, and she'd have known this story, she could have remembered that somebody else went to a foreign country. Somebody else lost so much. Somebody else felt deserted and abandoned. But somebody else became the prime minister of Egypt. That was the story of Joseph. That's the one that they delighted in. You see, Joseph understood this, and it says it in Genesis 50. You intended this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so, actually... There was this almost like she grasped something of God, but I'm not quite sure, was her view of God big enough? Because Joseph suddenly realized, actually, it wasn't just this difficulty. God meant it for good. Let me ask you a question. What is your view of God? What is your view of God? Is he a headmaster you can never quite please? Is he a machine that you could never actually relate to? Is he a master and you're really the slave that's trying to run around, do his bidding? Is he the creator and you're therefore you're the creature? I would like to say this. The Bible clearly paints the picture of God as Father. You see, this to me is why the Trinity is so important. Because before he was the creator and, we, and the creatures, before he was ruler over the thing, he always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore that tells us something about the kind of God that we serve. That he's a God of love. He is a God of love. And you say, how did you do that? Well, actually, he's always been a God of love. And when he created, he then became the ruler of what he created. But he's always a God of love. He is a God of love towards you. I think I could say this right throughout the Bible. You see, Naomi, one of the biggest points of despair I told you from the story was what? There was no child. No child, no future. No child, the name would never be remembered. But even there, hasn't she forgotten something? I mean, who else do we know of in the Bible that was old and childless? Sarah. I mean, here they are, you know, it's like, Old and childless. And it's almost like, oh God. And what does God say? I'll give you a child. And God did. Isaac. And it's almost like, oh yeah, he's the God of love that is able. Who else do we know of in the Bible? Rachel. Rachel. And she was married, wasn't she? She kept saying, I want a kid, I want a kid. My daughters, my sister's having loads of kids. Because they both married the same guy. Jacob. This is where we get the 12 tribes from. And it's almost like, what happened? God gave Joseph. What about Hannah? 
Hannah is in the temple. This woman crying out, oh God, she's accused of being a drunk because her, her lips are going so fast. Oh God, oh God, I'm desperate for a kid. And what happens? Samuel. He even tells us in Judges about the wife of Maniah. And she's saying, I want a kid, I want a kid. What happens? Samson. You see, what I think is that although she understood something of God, she saw God maybe in 3D, she didn't grasp God in 4D. She didn't actually grasp that there's even more to understand about God. See, one of the problems of Judges, and it's mentioned many times, is this. At that time, and this is Pete Cornford paraphrase, but you could look at it. In fact, no, I can, I can read it to you. It's the last verse. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. But actually, Naomi is about to discover the wonderful provision of a king. Because although this book starts with uh, Elimelech saying, oh golly, it ends with David. The greatest king is about to come on the scene. And it's almost like this is God's provision. Ruth will become his grandmother. And actually... David is only a foreshadow of Christ. So there's almost this huge, great thing in this thing. Wow, can we really see what God is doing? I feel God wants to stir us. Will we believe him? God is sovereign, I would take away from this. He rules the nations. It tells us that in Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises them up again. He gives and he takes away. God is sovereign. That's the great God that we serve. That's the Father that we worship. There's mystery with God. Life may be tough. Don't think, and I I think we have to be very careful. We don't have to say, oh, well, our God is, is, is beating me up. It says, doesn't it, in Psalm 34, the righteous person may have many troubles. Yeah, there can be difficulties. Agro at work, health problems. It doesn't say if you become a believer, you're suddenly going to escape problems. I do believe, though, that because our God is a father, that he leads us for our good, and we must trust him. And I think, ultimately, if we understood something of how great God is, we would know the freedom of Ruth. That she said, I'll leave everything. Some would say that this was her conversion moment on this road to Bethlehem. Some would say it's one of the three clearest non-Jewish people to make a response to God in the whole of the Old Testament. She gets this point of saying, actually, whatever it is, I'll leave it because I want to go there. I'm so caught up with him. I mean, Jesus talks about the pearl of greatest price, doesn't he, for the rest of us? Whatever it is, I'll leave. I was reading uh, yesterday John Wimber's book, The Way In is the Way On. John Wimber, um, he was a, a real radical pioneer, a man of God in the States. Some of you might have heard of Vineyard Churches. He was, I didn't realize this, he was an accomplished musician. He played 19 instruments professionally. When he came to faith, and literally he realized his desperate need of God. Right? He fell on his knees and cried out, God forgive me. When he came to faith, he had two albums in the top ten in the States. He was asked to help out with the Righteous Brothers. Everyone's heard of the Righteous Brothers, haven't they? You've lost that loving feeling. Well, you might know the song, not quite the tune. You know what I'm saying? He was one of these. Do you know, when he found God, he felt God tell him he'd to give up everything else. 
18 instruments, all the scores of music that he'd ever written, he took to the dump. He didn't even sell. What happened to the 19th one? I know you're asking. He sold that one because his wife really wanted a picture and he brought her the picture. He got rid of everything. This was a guy that was a talented musician and he went and got a job in a factory. Now, the rest is history. You can say Vineyard was known for their worship. What he realized is, I will give everything. He said, I give everything for him. Everything. All to follow him. It's almost like he grasped something. It's almost like, had he seen God in 4D? Had he suddenly realized, look, I'm nothing. It's all about him. And I think that is what I'd love us to take from this book. I think there is hope. I mean, that's why it's a great story. I know the chapters weren't there when it was first written. I could have read on. But I love it when it ends like this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, if you've read the book, you suddenly realize, cha-ching, that is hope for chapter two. If you haven't read the book, read it. No, 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 I will cover it next week. Seriously, I would encourage you, why not read the whole book? It's four chapters. I think Piper says it takes about 27 minutes for the average person to read it. You know, I'll leave it up to you. Let me know by next Sunday. You know, but there's almost this thing of actually, whew, there is hope just around the corner. Suddenly something's going to do. Suddenly it's almost like there's a crack and you almost feel like, and that's why I love this picture, it's almost like the dawn of a new day. Whoa, who knows what is just about to happen. Who, I think we get hope from this. We don't want to go away from Ruth one thing. Oh, golly, Pete told me. I'm going to spend a whole life of everything going wrong. I, mean, I signed up because I thought this was going to make things better. Oh, I've been conned. Where's the small print? Who led me to Christ in the first place? No, we're not meant to be like that. We're meant to be those saying, actually, I've never understood how great the God was. I never understood. It. He has got my life in his hand. It's not just the nations. It's my personal life in his hand. Will I surrender to him? Will I go forward in faith, believing him? Will I go forward expecting that actually he's the God that the old barren women gave them a child? I mean, such hope. In the midst of hopelessness, these people didn't know anything about the cross. I mean, surely if I wanted to go hope, that's why we sing about that, isn't it? I mean, I think I, I, I know so much more of the God of hope than even Ruth did. You know, I do know the God that ripped the curtain from top to bottom. Job done. I did it. Now come. That's the hope we know, isn't it? Hope of got all the guilt that I feel about the things I've done wrong, I've said wrong, wish I hadn't done. You mean that can just be wiped away? Hope for a new start. Hope for your strength with me and every step of the journey, whatever it's going to be like. That is the hope. But I think we'll be looking at as we look through this book. And that's why I think it's great that we're going to come and break bread together. Because to me, this is a symbol of our hope. Now, it's funny, I'll be totally honest. I know Emmanuel's going to lead us in this. As a church, we've always said, oh, we're going to break bread together every month. And I know we've only really been going since September. Uh, yeah, maybe a year, you could say, we've done some things. January, we officially opened. It's the first time we've done it two Sundays in a row. Oh, God, that's a bit committed, isn't it? But that's the hope we have. We don't have to just go once a month. We, we could do this regularly, couldn't we? This is the hope I have. 
Christ died for me. My hope is not about, oh golly, can I get back? My hope is not in myself. I don't know how many of you have got that app on your phone, Fatify. You can put your face in there and it sort of blows it up so it makes it look like you, what you might look in like 10 years' time. I, I was going to put mine up there, but I thought, no, someone will look at that and get it on Facebook. You know? so, Naomi, they said, is this Naomi? She didn't need Fatify. She'd had some bad years. It had really messed her up. But actually, she then comes to a place of hope because God breaks in. I don't know what the future holds. But I believe we go forward into the future with hope. Not because of us. Not because, oh, suddenly, oh, golly, there's a harvest. Oh, my luck's turned. Oh, not just because this door is open for me. It's not because suddenly I've got this, you know, nobody ever opens a door for me. I have to kick them down myself. No, it's not because of that. It's because of him. So what hope do I have for the church? We're in his hands. What hope do I have for people's marriages getting restored? We're in his hands. What hope do I have for the sick to be healed? We're in his hands. I mean, he's the almighty God. That's why I've got hope. Let's celebrate by breaking bread. I'll hand back to Emmanuel.